Thank you very much, John, for welcoming me back. I enjoyed visiting here before. Uh, and uh, the topic this time was suggested by your pastor. Uh, pastor Jason, uh, in his theological education, took one of my courses. And over the years, I have been uh, coming to visit and continue uh, the conversation. So my habit is to pace back and forth. You have it properly written in front of you. And I've scribbled it here for my own uh, benefit, but you don't have to read my scribbles. I use an outline uh, because it is a way for you to have some of the words and dates uh, printed out and uh, for uh, me to be able to uh, follow a, a pattern. It gives you an idea also, I hope, of what is under which. In other words, when I'm wandering through the, the lecture, you'll have a sense of where the headings are and what are some of the subcategories. Make it a little bit clearer, I hope. Anyhow, the Institutes, uh, I'm a historian, first of all. I'm not primarily a theologian. That is, I'm a historical the uh, theologian, which means that you have to get and be introduced to Calvin where he is in his historical moment uh, and time and culture in order to make any kind of sense of it. Think of it. Would, would you want... Uh, someone 50 years from now uh, to take what you have written in a, uh, say, uh, say you're teaching a Sunday school class uh, and uh, try to make it apply exactly to 50 years from now or your, your great-grandfather's writings assume that they would apply to your children and you've got to follow it. We live in time, and that's actually one of the great gifts of the Judeo-Christian heritage. We believe time and space are important enough that God came to live in them, to be part of them with us. And so when we are in time and space, we are responding to our cultural, social, um, historical moment. So I don't think you can actually understand uh, Calvin uh, in a reasonable way as, uh, without understanding his context. You can, make, you can read him as a contemporary, as one of our contemporaries, and get something out of him. But it's not actually probably what he was intending. So it's in order to get a better idea of what he thought he was writing, we want to try to put it in context. So just a little bit about who he is in his age. You've all heard of the Protestant Reformation. You all know what it is. Uh, we tend, though, to think of it as a kind of big break in the church's history, and to a certain extent it was, but there's no such thing as a historical movement that comes out of nowhere. Everything has roots in the time that's gone before it. Uh, we don't appear out of nowhere. Uh, the things that our families do are part of the tradition. We may think that they've been there all along, but in fact, that's an experience that is shaped by our family, our tradition, uh, and uh, so there's a continuity to it. So the Protestant Reformation is also not the only Reformation in the church's history. As a matter of fact, the Judeo-Christian heritage tends to have repeating uh, experiences of reform because there's always the re recognition, or repeatedly the recognition, that we don't live out or live up to uh, the ideals, the things that we affirm, the things that Jesus taught, uh, the, the prophets. So there's a sense that we're always reaching for uh, a better, a clearer, a fuller uh, understanding and practice of what we uh, affirm and a better uh, way of expressing it. So the Protestant Reformation, though, is one of a series, but it's also particularly outstanding. For one thing, it affected the entire uh, compass of Western Europe. There was no place that was not influenced by it, either positively or negatively. So it had an enormous impact. It also was um, affected by a different idea of what reform should be. Historically, most reforms, not all of them, but many of them have been shaped by uh, a sense that the church's moral life uh, was in great disrepair. Sometimes, though, and the Protestant Reformation is one example, there's a sense that the way the church's teaching needs to be reformed. And that tends to be 
uh, much more divisive because we want to get back to the right way, the proper way of understanding it. But what happens if you are challenging the understanding itself and not just saying we aren't living up to it? So in that sense, there's a distinctive uh, expression of the uh, faith in the Protestant Reformation. And it had a uh, consequences that were uh, lasting in the political and economic realms. So there's a sense in which it's a, a particularly uh, striking example uh, of the kinds of reforming life that are characteristic of the whole history. Uh, why do I go into this? Because it's important to remember that there is continuity and discontinuity. Most of the time when we're talking about uh, a, something like the Reformation, we talk about the discontinuities. How is it different uh, from what came before? But we also have to bear in mind that some things were continuous, that there was a, uh, a sense that people were still living in many of the same patterns uh, that they had before, even though some specific things had changed. Calvin then is a part of this. Calvin is a first generation Protestant, but a um, second generation reformer. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that Calvin grew up in the Roman uh, faith, the Roman Catholic Church, and was uh, changed or converted as an adult. So he is a first generation Protestant, but he actually is a second generation person among those who were leading the Protestant Reformation. And this makes a significant difference. Uh, one reason is that by the time Calvin comes on the scene, a lot of people who have broken with Rome have already begun to divide among themselves. So there's a sense in which he doesn't come to the reforming project, if you want to put it that way, in the same way Luther does. He comes after a number of splits, a number of theological arguments, a number of uh, controversies among those who've broken with Rome. So he is actually arguing on multiple different fronts. It's not simply, as with the early Luther, that he is arguing against the way he understood Rome uh, to have taught. But Calvin is also finding his way among all of those other splinter voices, if you want to put it that way, who have broken with Rome, but then broken with each other over different issues. What, so this also shapes how he does his theology. Sometimes people will say, what, what is Calvin going on about here? And some of my students have said, oh, now that you've explained the Anabaptist or whoever it is, they say, now I understand why he's making this argument here because he's not just arguing against uh, Rome, and he's not even just arguing against Anabaptists and Rome. He's also arguing with other Protestants. So you've got uh, a much more complex picture of what Calvin is doing. Look back at the heritage of the theology. What I'm doing this time is trying to give you a sense of what kind of theology Calvin is writing, what kind of book the Institutes is, and where it fits in the historical picture uh, so that we can appreciate the fine-tuning, uh, the various nuances, and can understand something of the uh, complexity that may seem to us off the wall. Uh, maybe par parenthetically, I should say, Calvin tends to stick to the point very closely. He's very practical. He doesn't wander off in wild directions. If you find him doing something that seems uh, like tilting at windmills, probably that's a point of argument in his day. He's not really off the point. The thing is that the uh, questions on the, on the table in his day are not exactly the same as ours. So if he is not uh, following what we might think of as a straight line, it's partly because he's constantly in conversation with the people around him, including the kinds of issues that they raise. So it's not going to be relevant to us, but in fact, it was clearly 
part of the relevant conversation of the people of his own time. What kinds of theologies are there, though? Uh, we all tend to hear of Calvin as the great theologian. We hear of Thomas Aquinas as a great theologian. And we tend to put them on the same level. Well, in many ways, they were equally important. But they were very different kinds of theologians. And they were in very different periods, which means that they were working with different kinds of uh, questions. Thomas Aquinas, in the uh, early 13th century, is writing a philosophical uh, theology. Europe has just recovered a number of the uh, ancient Greek writings, like from Aristotle and others, that they had not had for 12 centuries or so, uh, however long it was since those had been uh, uh, not in their hands. And they're very excited about drawing on this philosophical material to help them answer uh, theological questions. So Thomas Aquinas' project is to write a summa theologia. That is, the, the summary, the full picture of all theology, answering all the kinds of a, appropriate uh, questions that you could ask about God. That's an exciting project. But in fact, that's not what Calvin is doing. There are several centuries after uh, Aquinas, uh, and one of the things that happens, uh, his teaching uh, comes to be taught regularly in the, uh, they call schools. That was what we would call the university. Scholastic theology simply means the theology being taught in the schools. Uh, and its primary uh, focal point was how do you prove the truth of these theological statements? So he has put together this wonderful summary uh, covering every topic, very detailed. And he's gathered all of the authorities uh, from the early church, from Aristotle and other uh, philosophers, and added them into the uh, discussion so that you can see why he's basing his particular positions on uh, one or another of these theologians. It's a beautiful, systematic, uh, theological uh, enterprise. But it doesn't continue to be entirely satisfying for everybody. Over the next century and a half, a great many things are happening in Europe, including the bubonic plague, which wipes out huge numbers of people in the middle of the uh, uh, 14th century. By the later 14th century and the 15th century, people are saying, yes, it's fascinating theology that Aquinas has written, but it's not really very helpful pastorally. And furthermore, it isn't actually even still holding together perfectly, because other theologians were looking at it and saying things like, Thomas Aquinas says that philosophy and theology all fit together beautifully. OK, but we've been looking at this. And take just one example. Aristotle uh, says that matter is eternal. Scriptural teaching, the New Testament says, God created ex nihilo, out of nothing. That sounds like philosophy is saying one thing and theology is saying the other thing. Aquinas thought he had gotten them all beautifully put together so they didn't contradict each other. But other theologians began to say, wait a minute, your summary isn't quite as perfect and coherent and satisfying as you thought. And furthermore, it isn't answering some of the pastoral issues we have with these uh, people, the ones who have survived the plague, and the ones who are mourning those who have died in it. So by the time you get to the 15th century, the ways that people are writing theology is much more oriented toward pastoral care. It doesn't mean that they have forgotten Aquinas. He's still being taught in the universities. Um, but it means that a different kind of uh, theological thought is being practiced because it makes better sense to that period. I'm saying this because when you get to the time of Calvin, you've got other factors shaping theology. And what I'm trying to do is point out that uh, to say that Aquinas and Calvin are both very important does not to say that they're just alike, because they're different periods, they're different conceptions of exactly what do you need to do and what can you do in theology. 
factor that is particularly important in Calvin's uh, life is the advent of humanism. Uh, humanism is often interpreted as human-centered universe, but it's probably better understood as an intellectual revolution, a pedagogical uh, change, because the medieval uh, scholastic approach to education had been the use of textbooks with these uh, excerpts from the church fathers, the systematic uh, organization of uh, texts. And the object had been to prove the truth of those statements. So you added up the different quotations from Aristotle and Plato and Augustine and Chrysostom to try to work your way to the proof of a theological truth. The humanists said, no, what we want to do is go back to the original sources and read them in context in the original languages. And you discover when you do that, that that sentence you copied from Chrysostom and that sentence you copied from Augustine and you put them next to a sentence from uh, Aristotle and others, they don't actually come out sounding or meaning quite the same thing when you read them in the original language, in their original context, and say, but that sentence is not what the whole paragraph was about. So the humanist goal then uh, was, it, it really shook up the academic world because what it said was, your textbooks are irrelevant, if not wrong. Uh, we're going back to read the classics, the Bible, the church fathers, in the original languages, in context. And what happens then is a major challenge to the reigning theology because they are now going at it with a different idea of what is authoritative and how do you put it together. This is the world in which Calvin uh, comes. Uh, he is a humanist. Calvin is uh, trained first at the, at the university level. Everyone did uh, some scholastic theology simply because that was the, the lingua franca of the day. That those were the texts that were university. But when he went to his grad studies, he did law, not theology, uh, but law and the study of uh, the Bible were both being influenced by the new humanist approach, saying, we want to read the original book of law, not the excerpts that you're using in your argument. We want to read the original treatise by Augustine, not the excerpts. And as they were doing that, uh, it, it changed how they thought about and put together theology. Uh, Calvin is a lawyer, he is a humanist, uh, and he is then a pastor. Well, first of all, he really is a humanist in his Bible study. His primary under understanding was that what you do for theology is to explain the Bible. He drops out uh, the whole uh, philosophical uh, business that Thomas Aquinas had found so particularly enlightening. Calvin said, no, what you need for theology is the scripture. You need it in the original Hebrew, the original Greek, interpreted with the help of the church fathers. They're closer to, they're not infallible, but they're closer to the original. They can give you some insights into what it meant. And then you build your uh, theological expression by explaining what scripture means. That's the humanist project. Calvin understands that to be his calling. He thinks that he is uh, called to be a, what we might call a uh, theological writer. Uh, for the church. He is probably, he was probably a very, very much of an introvert, uh, shy, timid. He did not want to be out there in front of people, uh, but he really felt called to do the writing that would enable people to explain to themselves, their families, and each other how to read the Bible uh, with benefit. But when he got started writing, other people said, well, you write so well. Uh, you're so clear and organized. I want you to be a pastor. We need your help organizing uh, the church in Geneva. I don't know whether you've heard, ever heard the story, but uh, Farel, Calvin's only passing through Geneva overnight. And Farel, who's just convinced the city 
uh, to decide they're going to be Protestant, that is, going to follow the gospel. Uh, here's about Calvin being in the city. Calvin has just about six months before published the first edition of the Institutes. And Farel thinks, ah, this is the guy I need. So he goes and visits Calvin and says, you have to stay here and help me reform the church in Geneva. And Calvin says, no, thank you. I'm supposed to be writing. And Farel says, I will ask God to trouble your peace and quiet. I put a curse on your peace and quiet if you don't stay here and help me. Poor Calvin, because he understood that Bachel was speaking as a leader of the church, and that meant the voice of the church had called him to this ministry. All right, but it was not exactly what he thought his gifts were. Uh, so he ends up being a pastor, and, he, and this actually contributes considerably to how he does his theology, because he's working day by day for the entire rest of his life as a full-time pastor. We may think that of Luther as very pastoral, but he actually isn't a full-time pastor, only for a few years. Most of the time, he's a professor. Calvin is a full-time pastor the entire rest of his life, as well as being a full-time uh, professor. So you've got uh, those, those extra kinds of factors feeding into his theology. Okay, so this gives you introduction to the person. What about the institutes themselves? What's the name? Institutio is a Latin word that's used uh, for a kind of instruction, usually moral instruction. Uh, it's not, a, um, not meant to uh, be a, uh, actually a theology textbook. It's more like a uh, moral uh, guidance or catechetical teaching. The way it comes into English that we've used it as institutes is perhaps uh, inaccurate. Uh, it might be seen as a way of talking about the various headings of the moral teachings or the, the catechetical teachings that are all gathered into. Institutio would be the collection. Institutes, if you want to call it plural, would be the various headings. But you don't have to uh, worry that, but just to explain that the word itself doesn't mean multiple books necessarily as such. It just is the English way of referring to the uh, contents of the uh, collection. But that's not the only thing. It's the institutes of the Christian religion. You notice it's not the institutes of theology. Why is that important? Because theology would point you in the direction of the kind of thing Thomas Aquinas was doing, explaining everything that we need to know about God or everything that can be known about God. Religio, the religion word is actually directed more toward practice, toward catechesis, toward uh, lived practice, toward the exercise of uh, faith and religion. So Calvin, even in his title, is making it very clear that this is a different kind of theology. It's, it's a practical, it's a catechetical uh, kind of uh, teaching. And there are multiple stages of its development. Spends about 25 years writing the Institutes. Comes out in five different editions. Uh, each of them also comes out in several publications, and he usually touches up things a little bit for the new publication. But you think of them as uh, sort of five editions. Uh, they're in Latin and the, in French. So I'm going to go quickly through the list to point to them, and then come back and talk to, about each one a little bit. First edition, he finishes in late 1535, and it's published uh, the following March, 1536. It's a little booklet of six chapters, basically, uh, catechism. The second, remember 1536, I should, or I didn't say that. He is still a, an ivory tower person. I'll come back to that a bit more. By 1539, the book has expanded considerably uh, it's now 17 chapters instead of six, and it's got about three-fourths more uh, material in it. Uh, by 1543, he's added uh, uh, four more chapters. Uh, so it's now 21 chapters uh, with uh, additions 
all along the way in the 1550, he makes another revision. This one doesn't add so much material, but what it does is it numbers every paragraph, which means that it's much easier to find what he's talking about. The chapter 6, uh, paragraph 30. Chapter 14, uh, paragraph 4, or whatever it is. So it makes it much easier to manipulate, to handle. And then in 1559, the final edition, it's much expanded. It's a much, much bigger book. It's completely reorganized. He's working, though, he's working in Latin. This is the lingua franca of his day for every educated person. That basically means clergy and uh, some nobles who are learning uh, Latin. Uh, but that's the language that you use if you want it to be uh, spread across the world. Suppose one of us today were Latvian and were writing to be spread across the world. We'd probably write in English because very few people know Latvian. If we wanted anybody to interact with our text except our own Latin, uh, Latvian congregation, it has to be in a bigger, uh, more widespread language. But Calvin is also entirely aware uh, that there are many, many ordinary people who can't handle Latin. So he makes it a project to translate his book himself into French. That's his own language. Uh, he doesn't do it for the 36. He probably started uh, working on the 36. And then he becomes a pastor in Geneva and writes a catechism for them, which is a kind of similar thing. That is, it's a short uh, text. And uh, he doesn't get around to finishing the translation of the 36, because within a few years, He's got to write an expanded one. So the first one he actually translates is the 39, which comes into French, published in French in 1541. Then the 1543, he translates for 1545. The 50, he translates in 15, published in 51. And the 1559 comes into French in 1560. So what you've got is his clear awareness uh, that uh, ordinary people need access to this material as well. And that brings me to the next point about audiences and purposes. <coughs> we tend to hear of the institutes. Uh, parenthetically, I will say nobody has ever touched the earlier editions once the 1559 was published until the later 20th century. Think about it. If somebody had been writing a book for 25 years, uh, might think they'd finished it. You know, I've put it all together, I've, I've revised it, everything. That's the one we use. But his purpose and audience had changed over the years. And in some ways, forgetting the developments of the institutes means that we forget or don't take into account the different kinds of audiences and purposes that Calvin was engaged in. People have only used the final uh, edition for so many centuries that that's the only one that's known. But I would like to argue that there are good reasons for paying attention to the fact that he developed this over time with different uh, audiences and purposes in mind. 1536, uh, this is the one that he wrote uh, as a young French exile from France. Uh, Protestants were being persecuted in France. Uh, he's in Basel. He's putting it together. What he's doing is providing a summary of what the theological teaching of the Reformation is for people in France. Many of them who are uh, coming to believe that the Roman teaching is not right and biblical teaching uh, must be followed, don't have any sources to help them understand that. That's a new theolo theological approach. He's got to give them some kind of catechetical basis to be able to explain to themselves, their families, or other people, what it is that they now believe. So it functions as a catechism. With the first three chapters on uh, uh, the law, the creed, the Lord's Prayer, so it's very simple. It's got a few other things in the next three chapters. Okay. The second purpose, though, people in France are being persecuted. 
So he adds a long introductory letter to the king of France, uh, Francis I, uh, as an apologia for these Protestants. Are not seditious, they are not heretics. They are good Christians, they are good citizens. So the book comes to serve two purposes. It's a catechism and it's a defense of the gospel uh, to the king. Well, by the time he comes to, to start writing again, he's been a pastor for about two or three years. That was something that was not in his purview. Consequently, he's got a whole lot of other experiences and ideas that have to be fitted into what he thinks he needs to say. And his purpose has changed. One reason is that he's written a shorter uh, French catechism to serve as a catechesis for uh, the people that he was uh, originally addressing here. Another thing is he's now teaching pastors. Think back to the kind of theology that I was talking about. The theology being taught in the universities was the scholastic theology. There were also uh, some texts of the pastoral theology, Jean Gerson and others. Um, but by and large, it, was not, it did not correspond to what a person needed in order to teach Protestant teaching. Why? Because it was not directly based on uh, scriptural teaching in the original languages and scriptural teaching alone. Uh, so the people who wanted to become pastors, even if they had actually been to university or been taught scholastic theology, were not equipped to be Protestant pastors. They had not been taught to do their exegesis. They didn't know Greek, Greek or Hebrew. Uh, they didn't know how to read those texts in the original language, make sense of them there, and then preach them, because that wasn't the way theology was done before. So one of the things that Protestants have to do is create not only a new uh, theological, but new theological education, because what they had inherited was not relevant to the kind of work that pastors needed to be doing. Previously, pastors had been trained in scholastic theology, but the way that they used scripture was much more uh, in what we might call an illustrative uh, fashion or a spiritual interpretation. Uh, if this passage uh, in scripture uh, leads me to be able to uh, teach people uh, to be moral, not to steal, then that's a great use of it, even if that's not actually the point of the passage instead. Because the purpose of preaching was to make people spiritually better or morally better. It wasn't to explain what the Greek or the Hebrew meant. So when you get a different idea of the purpose of a pastoral task, which is humanist, going back to the sources, in the Greek, in the Hebrew, and proclaiming that, then the, the previous, it's not that there wasn't any preaching before, but it was not biblical exegesis. Uh, so if that's your idea of what is needed for the proclamation of the gospel, then you've got to start over again with textbooks. That's what Calvin ends up doing then uh, in the 1539. He's realizing that his audience now is ministers in training, or even ministers uh, on the job. They need some, some patterns of how can they do, how can they approach scripture from the perspective of the Greek and the Hebrew and try to put it together without all the philosophical parts that had come along with it before. So effectively, uh, Protestants were cutting out one of the main sources of authority that had been used in theological uh, tradition and insisting it is just scripture. Now, that doesn't mean scripture without any interpretation. It means scripture understood to the best possible way, best possible way possible. Um, what does the text actually say? 
What do the words mean? What is the context? You know, the whole paragraph that Paul's speaking or whatever. Um, what, what is Paul's letter about? How does it fit in there? What do they need? Well, they need a handbook that tells them how to put that scripture together. That's what the institutes started out being. So then this is a text for teaching pastors. In 1539, uh, most of it is focused on, uh, or the, most of the additions are focused on things that are central to the Reformation. A chapter on justification by faith and grace alone. A chapter on the relationship of the Old and New Testaments. How do you understand law and gospel? A chapter on Christian liberty. What does it mean uh, that we are free in Christ? All of these kinds of things. By 1543, the next section that he adds is more about how uh, to organize the church, about worship, about orders, ministry, about church order. So he's still building on what does a pastor need because they're also reorganizing what it means to be a congregation. So they're starting over, uh, not entirely, there are some continuities, but they're reimagining what does a leader of a congregation need to do and say and know how to do? He is no longer a priest who is an intermediary between the people and God. It's always he. He is a preacher who is exactly the same level, as far as they're concerned, relationship to God, but whose job is explaining scripture and therefore his teaching, his education is different. And that changes significantly what the person uh, in the pulpit is supposed to do, or the person at the altar becomes the person at the pulpit. So they're very different conceptions of the primary task of the church leader. So Calvin is working there to make it possible for these uh, new pastors to figure out how to read the Bible coherently uh, and how to put together a, a church. But he's also translating it. Remember, the Protestants said that there are no special priests who are privileged intercessors with God. It's the priesthood of believers. That doesn't mean necessarily the preacherhood of believers. The priesthood mean, means that all of us are equally uh, uh, ready to have, ac or have equal access to God in prayer. We don't need anyone else to pray for us. I mean, obviously we're supposed to pray for each other, but I mean, we do not need a mediator, human one, because we have the only real mediator, Jesus Christ. So that's not the role of the minister anymore. The role of the minister is preaching. But with the priesthood of believers, everybody is supposed to know as much as possible. It's not enough just to be able to say, I believe what the church believes. No, no, I need to know what it is I believe. I need to have some kind of handle on it, not just intellectually, uh, also, of course, spiritually, but there is an intellectual component. I have to have some kind of um, capacity to articulate or to understand what I believe. So Calvin wants the French translation of the Institutes for lay people. Now, lots of people, uh, most people couldn't read uh, but it was a long tradition of reading, there was a long tradition of reading aloud. So if one person in your family or village knew French, that person could read aloud the Institutes and everyone around would then have access to it. Uh, so having it in French was extremely important for the priesthood of believers, for all of these uh, Christians in uh, France, uh, other places too, but particularly in France because uh, the, there are other places where French is spoken, but that's the main one so that lay leaders would have access. Remember, this is a period of persecution of Protestants, and many of these little congregations, particularly in the 1540s, did not have a trained pastor. They had little house churches of believers. So whoever organized the house church needed something to help guide teaching the rest of them. That's what the French institutes would serve. Uh, that, was, that was their uh, pastoral text for the lay leaders because it was the way to teach. The last edition of the Institutes 
both in Latin and in French, is a complete theologian's handbook. This is a different purpose. Yes, it's still, you still can use it for pastors, but it now adds in lots of details and polemical arguments which are primarily useful for someone who has to defend the faith over against people attacking it, rather than being the material that you need to put together a positive presentation uh, for your congregation. It still is that. It still keeps all of the earlier material. But it, what's added to it now is the material that a theologian would need to protect the church from attack by theologians, philosophers, others. So what that, that can change the overall effect. Depends on where you read it. If you read sections that come from 36 or 39 in this edition, then it's still just as pastoral. But the overall effect now has been um, shifted a little bit because Calvin has added in pages and pages and pages from his polemical arguments with other people. He's just lifted them up and put them into the proper place because that's the armor that he needs to provide for theologians. So it depends on where you read the 1559 uh, as to what it sounds like. Some of it is still clearly very pastoral, but it's been uh, added to in such a fashion that it now functions differently. The 1560 French is a more exact translation of the 59. The 4151, uh, maybe I should have said that sooner, is actually a slightly modified form of the Latin. The text gives you the same material, but the Calvin is clearly aware that he's addressing lay people. For example, uh, in the Latin in 1539, there, most of the time he uses uh, the Greek word that means human being. And anthropos, so we get the anthropology from it. Uh, but occasionally he uses uh, the word that means male person. Aner, uh, andros. In, but or actually he does it in Latin, uh, in, in, in not in Greek. Sorry, uh, homo and vir. Beg your pardon, I'm going back and forth. Um, but when he translates that into French, the vir disappears. The male person disappears and he talks about the faithful or some other collective or still uses um, you know, the equivalent for, for homo, which is human being. Uh, but it's really interesting that he has made even that small an adjustment to the fact that he knows, if he's addressing educated people, they're male. But if he's addressing the faithful, male and female. And he also adds in uh, little explanatory notes. Uh, so if he refers in the Latin to Cicero, in the French he adds in a little note, uh, uh, a Stoic philosopher. Uh, or if he refers to Nero uh, in the Latin, he assumes any educated person knows that, any male who's been to university. But his ordinary French people aren't going to know that a Roman emperor. So all along the way, when he's uh, making that, it's still the same basic text, but he's clearly aware of his audience and altering it just enough that it can communicate to them uh, clearly. So, final point here, um, Calvin's other writings. One of the things uh, to say is that Calvin is often considered the man of one book, uh, but actually he would be rather horrified because he understood his biblical commentaries and his institutes to be uh, a pair. They should be read together. They go in tandem. Uh, his biblical exegesis, remember that's the authority for Protestants, going back to the reading the Hebrew, going back to reading the Greek. He spends much more time in his life at lecturing on the, on the uh, Bible 
and writing commentaries than he does on the Institute. As a matter of fact, he never lectures on the Institute. That's your handbook to bring along with you if you want to understand better how the different pieces of scripture fit together. But what you're really studying is the biblical text. So he does lectures and commentary on almost the entire Bible, almost the entire New Testament, and most of the Old Testament. Um, that's what he understood to be the meat and potatoes uh, of his work. And obviously, of course, then you get sermons for the uh, other people. So he, other ecclesiastical writings, a church order, a liturgy, Psalter, uh, a catechism. You know, Calvin is a pastor. So a lot of his time and energy goes into what do pastors do? They preach, they teach, they visit the sick, they go to session meetings, uh, they go back and visit some more sick, uh, they go to other meetings and more meetings, uh, and they work on their sermons, and that's what Calvin's doing most of his life. So those are some of his other writings. Then, of course, his letters. Calvin writes letters, pastoral letters. Somebody is sick, somebody's dying, someone's being persecuted uh, for faith. What does he do? He's got to respond to their human needs. Or uh, somebody is, uh, one of these little house churches in France is puzzled about how can we do the Lord's Supper? We don't have an ordained uh, person here yet. Or, you know, what do we do about someone who's married to a Catholic? Is that okay? I mean, how do we handle this? So all of these kinds of pastoral advice. So he's got to write letters. He's also writing letters to his friends and colleagues uh, about theological issues and debates with other people, uh, Anabaptists, Roman Catholics, Protestants, you know, sh sharing information about what the latest publications are, who, what arguments are being proposed, what kinds of persecutions are going on, uh, how can he mobilize help for somebody who's being persecuted. So he's got, there are all kinds of things that happen in his letter writing. He also writes treatises. These could be I have described, I think, as topical writings, uh, a writing on the Lord's Supper, a, a writing on the kinds of reforms that the church needs, a writing on uh, problems about understanding baptism or whatever it is. So uh, those, those can be pastoral, those can be polemical, those can be both. So these are, these are different topical kinds of uh, writings. Come back to, finally to the point. What is the relationship between the institutes and these other writings, particularly biblical exegesis? I started with that thing. He understands that the institutes are the handbook that you have to, that it will help you read the commentaries, will help you understand those texts. Because in the commentaries, Calvin is not primarily doing theology. He's primarily doing exegesis. What does this Hebrew word mean? How has it been interpreted by Augustine or Chrysostom? Uh, what are the best sources for understanding what Joseph in Egypt is experiencing, you know, all these kinds of things. What do you need to know to make sense of this passage? Um, and also he will include what, what do you need to be aware of if there are theological traditions, I mean exegetical traditions that say Joseph was doing X uh, and he believes that that's not the right interpretation. Then he has to argue why that's not the right interpretation. Again, this is when I mentioned earlier that he doesn't tilt at windmills. When you find something in his commentaries that sounds like he's going off on a rabbit trail, it's almost certainly a place where one of the other exegetes of that passage has said something that he thinks isn't tenable, and so he's got to set it straight. So that, th those are the, the interlocking ways that uh, he understands he's providing for the church and for pastors. You've got the institutes that helps you make sense of that scattered scripture or, or of all the different pieces. And then you've got the, the commentaries or if you're uh, in, in the congregation, the sermons. Calvin preaches straight through books, just like he does the commentaries. So what you get one case is 
What does it say? And the Institutes then tells you, how does that fit into the rest of the picture of biblical theology? Uh, because he's not really doing what is the relevance of this passage to theology overall when he's doing the commentary. He's simply explaining this is what it means, this is the kind of context, and so forth. So that, then the Institute serves as the handbook that helps you see how all the different pieces of scripture fit together in a practicable, understandable way. So, uh, I timed it pretty tightly, uh, but that's the end of my uh, first lecture, and we do have, what is it, four minutes for question and answer? And I'm willing to stay for, for more, but thank you very much for your patience. Very good question. I think what I would actually recommend would be that you start with a translation of the 1536 or the 1539, uh, that is one of the earlier uh, editions, because those, they're not simplified, but they're streamlined. You get the main things that he wants you to know uh, in a, a more clearly particularly uh, lay-oriented way. And I don't mean that uh, pejoratively. All I mean is that he doesn't presuppose that you know lots and lots of systematic theology. He's attempting to uh, orient uh, you to what he says. So those, that's an easier way uh, to approach it. The first English translation of 1536, I told you that they weren't paying attention to earlier editions till the late 20th century. The first time you have access to the 1536 is 1975. And the first time you have access to the 1539 in its French version is uh, 2009. People simply didn't pay attention because they said, oh, well, you know, it's all, the 1559, 1560 is the, the, the final thing. It's the most important thing. It's the one that Calvin said was good. Well, if you've been working on a text for 25 years, uh, you'd probably want to do the last version and have people read it. But if you're teaching a Sunday school class, you probably better go back to the Sunday school class lessons that you did 20 years ago if you really want them to, to follow it. And then you can build up the reading the last time. Because I'm, I'm convinced that people get lost in some of the, uh, the 1559. Does that, does that make sense? Not really. He, make, he continues to grow, so he makes some modifications. For example, you can tell if he's been reading a lot more commentaries on X or Y subject, then the nuance of how that verse is explained in a later, or, or referred to in a later edition of the Institutes may change slightly. It doesn't change dramatically, but it may be expanded or uh, reoriented a little bit. So he's constantly growing as he works with more uh, biblical texts, or, I mean, he's read the whole thing, but he certainly, in 1536, he was, you know, 26 years old. He had not uh, dealt with anything like the amount of literature that he would later have acquired. Uh, there are some places where uh, the emphasis shifts, and that's very interesting. That's part of what I want to talk about next week, a couple of examples of that. It's not an about face, but it, well, actually in one case or two cases, uh, the impact is significantly uh, shifted, um, even if it's only one sentence uh, that is omitted. Um, so he is continuing to grow and learn, and it isn't the identical text. 99 and 99 hundredths of it is still the same. Uh, with when he puts in, it's a mar 1559 is a marvelous cut and paste job. 
Because remember, they didn't have any way of rewriting things. So they would take a chunk of the previously printed one. And then when he wanted to add something in, he'd change a, a sentence or two to make a transition to put in the next section and dictate that section. As cut and paste jobs go, it is fabulous. Um, but it does mean if you're reading it, sometimes you can sense a difference in the texture. Because if you've got a passage from 1536 or 1539, it reads more flowingly. If you're reading a section of the polemic of the 1550s that he's put into it, then it's a much more dense text. Um, but so there are there are real there's real development. There's not really yeah amplification. And occasional, as I say, there are two or three places, particularly between 36 and 39, uh, where there are changes. For example, just one example, in 1536, actually it's in uh, the catechism's in work of 37, but that first section of texts, he says that baptism is not a means of grace. That sentence drops out in 39 and never comes back. And his teaching on sacraments emphasizes that they are a means of grace. So, I mean, in one sense, it's a dramatic change. In another sense, you have to be reading very carefully to see what has shifted. Because that's, theologically, that's a particularly, uh, that's a, a fairly significant thing to say. But there are only a very small handful of things like that that I found. More often it's amplification and maybe a little uh, nuancing as he has to take into a lot more account, a lot more things, because he's still learning. He hasn't read everything in 26. And as he does, he begins to realize there are more problems with this text than my first reading of it, even in Greek or Hebrew, because I can see now where all of these other exegetes have been pointing to a wider range of uses of that word in Greek, which may, may mean that it, doesn't, it isn't quite so simple to say this is the meaning of that word. It, it could have had a, several meanings. And therefore, when I'm interpreting it, how do I speak of it? So, so you can see him growing over time. It, it's, it's really fascinating. I mean, as I said, I'm a historian. And I get really excited to watch, um, to watch things growing and developing. Because that's what, that's what I would do if, if I'd been writing something you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, and I know more now. I, I, wouldn't teach, I don't teach Calvin the same way I did 25 years ago. Sure, it's the same basic thing, but I've done lots of other reading. And it doesn't look the same. Good question. Uh, there are a number of things that I was actually going to mention next time, but... Um, well, I don't want to steal your... No, 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 but I'll just refer to it here. Um, Calvin lives in Christendom. He doesn't know anybody who's not a baptized Christian. There are handfuls of Jewish people, and he knows there are Muslims, but that's basically his world. It's such a totally different worldview that that has to be taken into account all the time. I always remind my students, Calvin doesn't know any unchurched people in the sense that people who've never heard the gospel or even who've never been baptized. Now, what they've heard about the gospel is the problem. Have they actually heard the text 
or have they heard it filtered? And that's where the problem comes in. So uh, that's just one parenthesis. Calvin's context is so different. On the other hand, if we care, if, if we still believe the Bible is relevant, uh, if we still believe that um, it has a, a purpose for us to proclaim, it, there is a purpose in our proclaiming it, then Calvin is one of the best ways to take it seriously. Calvin is never, he doesn't skip anything. That's one of the things that makes him so annoying to some people. Calvin goes straight through every com text for commentary, every text when he's preaching. Even most of his contemporaries uh, summarize bits and only focus on the parts that they think are theologically the most important. They are not trying to be uh, careless. It's just that they don't think that you need to take every word seriously. Calvin goes through the entire thing. He doesn't skip anything, which means he gets into various kinds of problems at times because it doesn't all fit together. But if we are serious about taking the whole text seriously, there are very few better, and I can't think of anyone better, as a guide to have how you do that. It's not satisfying to lots of people. It's not philosophical. It doesn't answer all questions. Uh, it is not um, comfortable in lots of cases. But it is very, very serious and careful and intelligent and well-written. But I mean, th that, that is one way of measuring, am I taking seriously the whole of the text? Because most people today pick and choose what parts of scripture they want to read. Uh, Calvin <laughs> doesn't. I'm just wondering in your career and your research and so forth, if there's any particular people like uh, Calvin University or Calvin Theological Seminary that you prefer to or, or learn from about Calvin? Um, I, my colleagues there uh, are conversation partners. Most of them are younger than I am. Uh, so I haven't actually been their, their student. <laughs> yes. Most, I, I will hope you'll understand how I mean this. Most of the people who taught me focused only on the Institute, no matter where they were. One of my contributions, I think, is the insistence that we have to pay attention to others of other Cal Calvin writings in order to make sense of the Institute because other people have dealt with his sermons. Not very many people have tried to put them in conversation, sermons and institutes. And not very many people have tried to put the sermons in conversation with the other writings. Or um, one of, I was asked to, any of you know the series, The Classics of Western Spirituality, published by Paulist Press. It's a really good series of translations of important uh, texts. Uh, I mean, they started out with Aquinas and all the rest, but they've spread over into uh, Quaker spirituality, uh, Alaskan spirituality. These are substantial translations with a substantial introduction 
for all kinds of texts, Europe and the Americas, of spirituality. They're excellent for use in the classroom because they give you a good-sized piece of basic text. So you're reading the text itself and not what somebody else said about it. I was asked to do the Calvin text. And of course, everybody would expect, oh, you're going to give us institutes. And I said, sorry. Uh, you can get the institutes in English in many different versions. I'm not doing that. What I did was a compendium, an anthology, with a few sermons set in the liturgical context. So you started, you read through the whole liturgy that they would appear in with the sermon. Prayers, material on Calvin's biography or spirituality, sermons, I mean, I mean like letters, pastoral letters, uh, some excerpts from uh, the institutes, uh, some other pieces, but my intention was to see that, it, to persuade people that Calvin was being truncated by being read only in the institutes. And I've been told, second, third hand, fourth hand, I'm not sure, I remember what, that that is the volume of the Paulist press that sold best. I was quite flattered. Um, it's used in classrooms. Uh, so I say that only to say that this is not the way you would have been taught Calvin 50 years ago. And it's not the way I was taught Calvin. 